And just being aware of the fact that there's a possibility that you might not get the same income reimbursement and also just the payment, the salary, as compared to a, a male. That's Dr. Marilyn Heine. In this two-part series on moving medicine, Dr. Heine, Dr. Joanna Bisgrove, and Dr. Donna Woodson form a panel of leaders to discuss negotiations for fair compensation and benefits, as well as the non-traditional paths that they've taken in their careers. You should try to find ways to actually explore that and really hold other people accountable to make sure that they give you the straight scoop. In honor of Women in Medicine Month, here's part two of this special replay episode. Are there any non-traditional routes to medicine that you've taken or maybe something unique you've done along your path in medicine? Dr. Woodson, do you want to start with that? I think it was non-traditional because there weren't many women, but there wasn't that much. I I guess I had a good posse around me that encouraged me to to go on. So others have gone very non-traditional. I I did go to graduate school. I wanted to build that up. As I said, University of Oregon Medical School, 100 uh, M1s applying and one female of those. So I knew that before I even applied that I would... um, uh, have to have some other background, and I think working in graduate school. So I didn't apply there. Um, I ended up, I was moving back here, and it was um, touted as a community of scholars. That really appealed to me uh, because I remember the little, um, uh, having had some tough teachers for 12 years, um, and it was an all girls school, and that made it even tougher. And so when I got that little leadership award, I look back at it in this little box that it was really from the nuns, a little cross that said excellence in leadership. So I, I guess then I thought I could do it. I also thought I could really do physics and I would have loved to do engineering because you are the problem solvers. That's a wonderful, wonderful start. So I, it wasn't as non-traditional other than that there weren't many women, but then it was, I think they just thought it was unique. And so I'm from the Pacific Northwest. They're pretty much crazy out there now, and this Midwest is pretty calm, so I'm doing fine. I'm going to stick here. So you went from an all-girls school to being one of the few in your medical school class. How did you how did you take that transition? Did you even know? Well, I thought it was wonderful. I didn't know (laughs) (laughs) what's not to like about that. (laughs) And my two interestingly have been raised in a Catholic all-girls school, my two best friends in medical school were two Jewish fellows, and we studied together every weekend, and they were, they were wonderful. So it was the opportunity, but here, for your opportunity to meet others from all across the country, and you'd be amazed how many, I've seen over the years, how many friendships have, have survived and lasted many, many years. And meeting people, some of the great names in medicine are here, and you can meet those. So if I don't know them, but you want to meet them, we'll figure out some way, and you can say, remember, I, I shook your hand, I met you, we were together, and blah, 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 blah. So that's, that's always a good start to anything. So uh, whenever you can shake someone's hand and have somebody take a picture of it, uh, uh, you're golden. <laughs> and post it, post it on social media. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Not my social media, but I give it to some of my, my friends here, and they help me do that. All right, Dr. Biscoe, do you have any non-traditional routes to medicine that you may have taken? I the engineering. <laughs> yeah, mainly. Yeah. I think the main thing that was non-traditional for me at my time was that there was still there was still not a lot of women in really heavy physics science. Like we were by the time I got to medical school, there was it was half women in 
in the medical school, like there was about almost half women in our in our medical school class of Rush when we graduated in 2003. But Rush really was an early adopter of trying to really get a lot, like really mix the genders and then get a lot of women in and make it more gender gender equal and gender neutral. So, so Rush was very ahead of that. But but a lot of lot of my fellow classmates did biology. They, they did more traditional. This whole idea of coming from like the hard sciences, there was still a lot of block on that, and there still is to a lot of degree. Women are still very very much discriminated against heavily in in the in the hard sciences and engineering. Um, I think the thing that was really fortunate for me is that at my high school, Evanston Township, which is actually a public high school just north of here. Um, I happened to have a teacher who, a, a physics teacher, who was part of this advanced program, but his two daughters, he wanted them to be physics teachers, they became English teachers. So as to make up for that, he was pushing every single woman he could into the hard sciences. And he was just like, he loved us, he like, I came in to get my grade, he would come out and give me a, a hug. He said, you did so great on the test. I'm like, well, what did I get? But it, was, but it was really supportive. And so the letter, it was his idea for me to go to Cornell. And I'd never really heard of Cornell, but we were involved in a nationwide like a nationwide supercomputing competition that our school happened to win every year. But that we had this access to Cornell. And he's like, go. Uh, I applied, and I got in and got a small scholarship. I was like, wow. Um, and then, yeah, really in the engineering, the engineering is actually kind of funny to some degree because all my friends would laugh at me because engineering is going to be my backup if I didn't get to medical school. And they're all going, engineering is a backup? I'm like, yeah, it's a good career. Why not? But um, they just, they're lucky. Like, no one ever thought, like, especially at that time, the concept of engineering being a backup to anything was just bizarre. But to me, I like, medical school is going to be hard to get into. So, um, but yeah, that's the main, and I, then I took a year off between college and med school. I've learned sign language, I worked as an interpreter, I mean, it was just that one year off. But yeah, going that hard sciences route in the early mid-90s was a little non-traditional. It's less so today. I guess mine was actually more traditional, although I, I did the soft sciences. <laughs> All right. uh, the uh, psychology was my major, but I also, um, I taught actually during high school, uh, after my high school, uh, you know, after the day was done, I would go and teach in a parochial program. Um, and that was a love as well, because I could actually work with younger, like first and second graders, and I would be able to help coach them. And that was a, another way to actually kind of just be involved with younger folks and, and get them enthused in something that, I mean, it was really interesting, because one of the things that they said to me um, I was supposed to be like the support teacher. So, for example, there was there were classes, the regular classes going on, and then they would say, "We have these children; they're really not engaged, or they're really bored, or they're really advanced." But then we take them out of that particular classroom and bring them in and do really more dynamic and fun things, and they would learn. I'm thinking. They're all basically really just want to be engaged. If you have to appeal to them, and then when they had in the engagement. They all did, but not you know, phenomenally well. It was really great. And I also taught after, like during other times that I wasn't going in the college classroom. I mean, obviously it wasn't on Sunday, so I was able to teach then also. And I think that was helpful just to kind of get a little bit more engagement just in doing different activities. But advocacy's always been a passion of mine. 
ever, I mean, for years, for years, ever since I was much younger. Um, and I think that also is really helpful. It helps a lot in medicine, because there's so much. I mean, Joanna's talking about advocacy that she had been experiencing from many years before as well. And I think that passion to actually help others, advance a cause that's really important, find out how you actually can get something accomplished, or at least raise a profile, that's really helpful. And that's definitely not classic medicine, and a lot of our colleagues aren't involved so much in that, and we have to kind of explain to them, you know, you can have phenomenal education, but if the legislators are going to dictate what we can or cannot do, it's incumbent upon us to advocate for our patients not just at the bedside, but also in the halls of our legislatures, and so both at the federal and state level. So getting other people and colleagues involved in that and trying to inspire them in, in grassroots activities. Uh, I just sent out something just the other day on that. That's a, an issue that's being addressed in Pennsylvania. So there are some Sometimes there are kind of non-traditional ways of getting into medicine, but also going through the course of medicine and how you become, just have a much more rich experience. Because I had two uncles who were in medicine. Um, one was in family medicine, the other cardiology, and they both were phenomenal individuals in terms of relating to the patients, putting the patients first, and being great educators. And one uncle in particular was really um, a very big proponent of being involved in organized medicine. He thought that would be a really helpful, just fulfilling activity. But he also said, whatever you do, make sure it's a little diverse. Not just the clinical, although I love working with the patients. He said also, you know, the organized medicine, research if you're interested, teaching, just kind of mix it up a little. It actually, the diversity of your, of your career portfolio, so to speak, actually keeps you going and keeps you feeling that it's a really exciting uh, process that you're going through. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. So our next question is, a lot of women often cite, women physicians often cite having difficulty navigating with their employers and their residency programs in um, making sure that they're treating, treated well, that they're compensated well, that they get the same vacation days, that they get the same health leave or maternity leave. How do you um, suggest that, or how have you in the past maybe uh, negotiated with employers in this, and how do you suggest that women physicians navigate this? Here's how you negotiate. You go into private practice. You are your own boss, okay? You talk things over with your partners. Um, you see patients the way you want to see them, and, and then you get paid for, you know, what you've done. Now, there came a time, though, when I thought this is, and I was invited over to the medical college to start a um, uh, Center for Women's Health, but they thought I had something like millions of dollars to build a building, and I didn't. So anyway, <laughs> there's no building there, I, I, and I didn't promise that. Uh, but what, what happened then is that, okay, I'm going to have to negotiate. 
I am going into academic medicine, which was exciting to me because I'd always felt that teaching, students would be in my office for a month, that was the best part, um, and then teaching every patient you have. And so I thought that's going to be delightful. But when you go into the world of academia, and that's most of what you have been exposed to so far, well, guess what sticks its head under the tent? Politics. Academia is quite a different world. So I had no idea. When I had my very first medical job, it was a, a very successful physician who had built a medical center next to a brand new hospital in our community. And he came to me, he knew uh, uh, me and I saw his patients in the hospital and asked me if I'd like to, like to consider working for him. Well, how could I keep the joy? Uh, uh, and so I went out to this beautiful new office. He was a great businessman, which I was, I just wanted enough to buy high heels, that's all. And Marilyn's the same way, I think. She's got to have the right shoes, right? <laughs> okay, I always admire her shoes. So when we finished touring, he said, now if you would join me, this could be your office. Well, I mean, it wasn't huge, but it was beautiful, and it had full glass windows, and it looked out on a little pond. And uh, so I said, oh, I, this is really nice. And he said, well, when could you start? And I said, tomorrow. And the, the one thing I never asked him is how much you're going to pay me. I never, I was just blown away by the fact that I had my first job. So that is, so I didn't have to worry about it then. He said, well, we'll pay you 50% of what you earn and we'll do this and that. If you become board certified, we'll pay you more. My first job was in Bird's Eye Bean in Berry Fields when I was nine. And that was, um, uh, it was a pretty um, interesting job. I made really two very important decisions then about my entire life. So we rode an hour and a half early morning to get to the fields. And it was cold. And then the sun was coming up one day. I had this beautiful row of strawberries. They were huge. I knew it wouldn't take long to earn the 13 cents I would get when I filled up that carrier. I felt something on my back. And it was one of the teenage boys that was on our team. I was nine. He was probably 17. He liked that row of strawberries, too. He kicked me off that row onto the next row of strawberries. I really, truly remember that event in my life because I really, truly thought exactly this. I am never going to work in anybody's garden but my own, and I'm going to be my own boss. And you know that stuck. That was one of the dreams or aspirations I stuck with. And when times get tough, I look back on that. Of course, I didn't know that I had my little bank account at the end of the summer, I'd earned $61 and I was going to go out and buy something because I didn't buy clothes because you wore uniforms. But I said to my mother, I think you're going to take me out. And she goes, well, honey, I have something to tell you. And I go, oh, well, what's that? When can we go? She goes, well, the money's gone. And I said, what do you mean my money's gone? I have a little bank book. And I said, $61.25. And she goes, well, we had to spend it. Um, I said, on what? You don't have any new clothes. You never wear any new clothes. Of course, you give me the money to get new clothes. but." Um, uh, and so she said we had to spend it on food. I mean, how selfish we are when we're young. You know, and so th that I never forgot either, but I didn't blame her for that because she was so unselfish. Uh, but as you go on then, uh, you find that there are other ways you, you get around things and that, that make a difference. And I, I think those things are what make you persevere because you've had that, that dream or aspiration. And um, I, I think those are the things that first off started me out and then seeing what we had and having the dream and persevering. So I'm anxious to hear what you have to say. Okay. I'm, in terms of being my own boss, that was at owning my own practice. That was always a concept that terrified me. So the idea of owning my own practice, not going to do that. 
being having I would be constantly worrying about the money. I'm not good at like telling people you're bad. You have to do this or that. Or like disciplining is not my thing. I much more like to be the positive person. So employed medicine or like a larger multi-specialty group was always where there's other people sort of doing the HR stuff was always going to be my be my place to go. So you got to navigate in that because we each have our own practice organizations that are going to work for us. So how do you, so how have I operated in a large, what was previously a physician-owned group that then got bought out by SSM, five years now, five, six years, um, and then still a physician run, but navigating sometimes with the Catholic overseers, overlords, as I'll call them. Um, (laughs) But in, in reality, a lot of times, actually, SSM has actually been better for us because as physicians to each other, we're, we're actually not, SSM has pointed out all the ways that our group has not been good to each other and has actually, op- in a lot of ways, opened up the ability for me to start advocating for um, fair gender equity and gender pay. One thing just happened recently. We've had this payment model in place for a long time that is complicated to explain even to people who are under it, but it, and it in multiple different ways is unfair to a lot of different people. One of the problems that came up is one of the groups that is unfair to is part-time physicians. And everybody knew that. And I went, wait a minute. Most of the time, there are a lot more women that are part-time physicians than men. And so I raised the question. And that people had brought up for, the people had brought up for years, this is not fair to part-time physicians, we cannot do this, and they got blown off. I brought up the question the different way, <laughs> and which I brought it up in terms of more, like, with the issue with women being part-time physicians, because then I brought up the Equal Pay Act. This is when it's helpful to be involved in policy, because you know healthcare policy and you know the law. So one of the things you're going to need in order to get through any kind of difficulty, the thing that helps you is solid evidence, like things that you can throw. It's not not a a them versus us argument. You've got data. You've got transparency. We have have in the internet now. There is data everywhere. What does the average physician make in this field? That's one of the things we're trying to beat down quite a bit for anyone in, in terms of gender equity and equity and pay because it isn't just about women, it's about everybody. Um, Because gender equity in the workplace benefits everybody that's there. Men, women, transgender, whomever. Um, back Back to the issue I raised. After years of being pushed aside by someone who was from our old system, SSM and the new system said, okay, let's do the deep dive. And this was important because we're working on developing a new model that's going to come into, that's going to be implemented January 1st of 2020. And they talked about wanting to take components of the old model. They did the deep dive. We discovered a couple things. We actually have a lot of men that are part-time for whatever reason. We also have our leadership positions are part-time clinical. And, the, and people who, and there's a number of men that are leaders. And the leaders, even though they're full-time fully, they get hit by this, this weird quirk. And so, but because of that, men and women were about affected equally. And so my argument fell, but at the same time, it made it very clear what was wrong with the payment model. 
and how it would, could affect gender, especially and be, with knowing that more women could become um, part-time, part especially in the future, and how, like, how it really hurt people in general, that's gone. We are no longer touching any part of the old model in our new model. And being able to bring forth the study and get the data and make things transparent made it clear what we had to do. Data always bring things to light. Transparency is always important. No employer should ever ask you, what did you make at your last job? And if they do, you do not answer. And if they are asking you that, maybe that's not the place for you to work. Because you should be able to negotiate on your own skills, and it should be about what the other physician of your skill level is making at, at your skill level, at your hours, regardless of gender. So just any quick thoughts from Dr. Hine? Yeah, I just think that there's more data that's out there now. Um, in, you know, you can check Medscape and other resources to find out, like what Joanna said, kind of where you should stack up in comparison based on location. A lot of times it's regional in terms of what um, the salaries or the earning potential is. So, but if you look at where you want to be in practice and what's the data that's showing what the, what the earning potential is out there, at least you'll have an idea. And just being aware of the fact that there's that possibility that you might not get the same um, income, you know, uh, reimbursement, and also just the payment, the salary, as compared to a, a male. You should find, try to find ways to actually explore that, and really hold other people accountable to make sure that they give you the straight, the straight scoop, uh, so that you um, you tell them. Uh, you know, basically that you want to have the information, whether it's if it's private practice, accounts receivable or whatever, or if it's, you know, in a pay, in a salary position, academics, whatever, you try to get the data online if, to start with, but then also explore these other avenues and, and speak up for yourself so that they don't feel like they're, you know, hoodwinking you. You are more aware that there could be a differential uh, that you do not feel is warranted. Medicine doesn't stand still and neither do we. AMA members don't just keep up with medicine, they shape its future. Help move medicine, join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. Can I make just a sidebar yeah. to your comments? I'm glad you mentioned when you talked about gender equity that you mentioned it's not just women. Because that's the thought, isn't it? When you say gender equity, I think most people immediately think because for years it has been mainly focused on women not having equal pay or equal hours. Um, there was, a, in the organized medical staff section, there was a physician who had come for the first time, an OBGYN chair of her department, talking about the group that a hospital had hired a couple years ago all females and all, whether it makes a difference or not, they were all DOs, so they, they sort of knew each other. Um, and along comes a male, uh, OBGYN, who wants to get into the group, at least be, he's on the hospital staff, at least to share call. They absolutely refused him, absolutely refused him. So uh, we need to make sure, while we're dealing with the inequities of the past, as you alluded to, that we don't forget now they may be having, believe that or not, but it's true, some of the same problems women have had. So I want you to use that 
kinder self down in there. It doesn't mean that men aren't kind. But don't forget, if they may be going through it, we'll just say, well, instead of saying, well, how do you like it now, saying this is not fair to either. So we need, so we changed some wording in one of the resolutions we were working on to make it sure, even though it said gender is a general term equity that we added uh, the other things that you, you mentioned in it. And one other thing, there's a little book. This is how I got through asking for a salary when I joined academia. Somebody told me about it. I don't think it was a doctor, it may have been a PhD. She said, if you're in academia, you can get the data. Uh, and it wasn't well known then that you could find out how much each level of professorship got when you went into academic medicine or in a, 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 a PhD in a university setting. And a lot, a lot of the difference there is that you do clinical work and they make a lot of money on that. So uh, the book was Women Don't Ask. I still think, I don't know if it's still published, please try to find it, it's small. We still don't do that. Somehow we withdraw. We don't realize our own worth. But that's true for men, too. Somehow, I think because way in the past, when there was much more responsibility by taking one of the, the spouses of caring for the children and paying the bills, that uh, this is important to get your worth out there. And if you have the numbers, just like you mentioned, if you just go in and think you can just tell them how wonderful you are, it's not going to work. You've got to have the numbers. So that book, Women Don't Ask, but think about that in any situation. You can do it in a way that isn't being um, obnoxious uh, and not being too saccharine and being too traditional, but very matter of fact. So women don't ask. Make sure you know your own. And it is different in academia. Uh, and the, so the other thing I looked at is, hmm, I've been around. I've been a volunteer faculty for years and years. I'm going in at a different level. And that's what I said. I'm going in. Of course, the. Um, it was a different dean then. I don't, I've known Dr. R. Dean for a long time, but, um, and I said, uh, I feel that I have the credentials to go in as a full professor. And so I got two professorships in different departments. So you never know until you ask, but have the data. So set thank the, you. Set the bar high. You might get it. Yeah, actually the research has shown that women are much less likely to ask, and that because of that, women are more likely to be promoted based off their achievement, whereas men are pro promoted based off of their potential for achievement. Mm -hmm. And so it's like what you've done versus what they could do. This has been Moving Medicine. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.